I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The summer holidays are usually a time for beaches and booze. Every year, pleasure seekers jump on a plane for some days in the sun, but not this year. I think there has been an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented to describe the situation. The idea of having a bunch of people crunched together in the Eurostar is, you know, a surefire way to ensure that the virus is not going to be controlled. The coronavirus crisis has sent the world into lockdown and could cancel the Northern Hemisphere's summer. This will affect not just holidaymakers, but the tourism industry too, which is a powerful driver of global economic growth and development. Last week, Hertz, a giant in the car rental business, filed for bankruptcy in America. The 102-year-old company saw its cash flow dry up as customers were obliged to stay at home and airports, a big source of revenue, closed down. Hello, I'm Simon Long, a senior editor at The Economist. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on business and finance. In this programme, we'll hear about how tourism and travel companies, as well as governments, are adapting to a much-changed world. And we'll ask what the travel industry will look like in the future. Coronavirus is having what I would call a total impact on tourism. Every aspect of travel, of accommodation, of anything you might want to travel for is being impacted. Stanley Pignal is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent. It starts with airlines, which are down something like 80%. Many hotels are closed, obviously. Big events are postponed, so the Olympic Games, for example, but also things like the Euros football championships or big music festivals. So it's hard to travel, and sometimes it's hard to see a reason why you would want to. A city break is just less fun if you can't catch a show or visit a restaurant. And that's depressing for people, but it also has a huge economic impact. Tourism is a huge economic sector, which you can't just close down. Clearly, some countries are going to be worse affected than others. Which ones rely particularly heavily on tourism? Europe, in general, is kind of the Saudi Arabia of tourism. We really have it all. We have beaches in the south, we have lots of cultural stuff, we have history. There isn't a country in Europe that isn't worth visiting. If you look at Iceland or Malta, for example, have something like five to seven times more visitors than they have inhabitants. That's a lot of jobs, that's a lot of GDP, and it's a major source of exports. Because remember, from an economic point of view, what tourism does is generate exports. Having a German person visit Greece and spend money there is not so different from a Greek buying a German-made car. It's an export. There are lots of countries for whom it's basically the only export. And that's obviously not a good position to be in right now. Are there countries where it's actually going to lead to sort of economic breakdown, which are going to need to be bailed out? 
There are about a dozen countries that rely on tourism for over 60% of their exports. I have a partial list here. This will make you dream. Grenada, the Bahamas, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and so on. These are all places that are obviously lovely places to visit that people can't get to right now. And they use tourism dollars to finance imports, to buy food, to buy fuel. So if you look at the list of countries getting IMF bailouts, for example, there are a lot of lovely beaches there. And let's look at the business impact of this. Which companies are likely to be hardest hit? Airlines, hotels, I suppose? Yeah, so so there are two types of companies that get hit from a fall in tourism. The first wave are the obvious ones that you just named. The airlines, the hotels, but also cruise ship operators, car rental companies. All of these companies that can't provide their services anymore, their share prices have been absolutely battered. They're some of the worst performers in the stock market. What's kind of interesting is the second wave, and that's a bit more surprising. So car makers, selling cars to fleet, so to car rental companies, is a big money spinner for them. And obviously that has come to a complete standstill. So it's an indirect impact in the same way that Airbus and Boeing aren't selling any passenger jets to airlines. Further afield, one that you might not expect is luxury firms. So the likes of Louis Vuitton and Cartier, they're hugely hit in part because a lot of their sales are to tourists. So notably Chinese tourists visiting Europe. Most of the sales of luxury goods to Chinese people happen outside of China. If Chinese people aren't traveling so much outside of China, then that has a huge impact. So we've already seen the first order impact. What's going to be interesting now is to see what is the second order impact further removed from the airlines and the hotels. But what about the digital disruptors of the tourism business, the Airbnbs, the Expedias, the Booking.coms, those sorts of businesses? Airbnb has fired a quarter of its workforce and it expects its revenues to fall by half this year. So clearly they are feeling the impact. All the flight booking platforms as well uh, have reported some, some, some pretty gruesome numbers. Airbnb say there's now a pickup in demand, maybe from people looking to holiday closer to home. You might not go on a big exotic holiday, but you might still want to get out to the countryside. That certainly seems to be popular amongst the people I speak to, but it seems like demand is pretty down anyway for those sites. And once it's all over, or at least once the lockdown is eased considerably, I suppose there must be fear that people will have less spending power. A lot of people are going to be feeling poor this summer. Don't forget that for many people, holidays are something of a luxury. I'm in France, and France is a country in which people have a lot of paid leave and maybe a a reputation uh, sometimes fully deserved for enjoying the good life. But even here, something like 40% of people don't go on holiday. It's a luxury for a lot of people. And this year, having lost a lot of income, it's probably one of the first things that they're going to trim. That would especially be the case if holidays get more expensive because, for example, flights need to charge more to keep middle seats empty or hotels need to pass on hygiene costs. That were the early stages of that. But you would imagine that there is going to be a demand deficit to the tourism question as well. But will there at least be a boom in in staycations, in domestic tourism and in things like camping? That's the big hope. Domestic tourism is huge. Depends on how you measure it, but often it's actually the lion's share of a country's tourism industry. There, it depends on your balance of tourists. Let me explain. Some countries will be able to replace missing foreigners, if you want, with locals. So France is a good example. A lot of people won't come because they can't come, but a lot of people won't leave. So maybe you can make a Parisian sit under the parasol that a Londoner would have hogged otherwise. Some countries are going to be in the opposite situation. They're going to have a deficit. So if you're Britain or if you're China, the problem is you have way too little holiday capacity domestically. If everyone stays home, there just aren't enough beaches and hotels for Brits 
who would usually go to Spain or France or Greece or something. The third category is probably the worst one to be in, and that's the countries that have a shortfall of tourists because people can't come in, but they don't have enough locals to get bums on parasols. If you look at the distribution of searches for domestic flights versus searches for international flights by South Koreans in April, the distribution is basically flipped. Lena Shipper is the Economist's sole bureau chief. So normally 70% of flight searches are for international flights and around 30 are for domestic flights. And this year, around 80% of searches were for domestic flights and only 20 were for international flights, which shows you that people are just looking into domestic tourism a lot more. South Korea was an early success story in containing the coronavirus outbreak thanks to robust testing and contact tracing. Lena recently travelled to Jeju, a Korean island, for a holiday that helped her understand the impact the pandemic has had on the domestic tourism industry. This is going to sound very envy-inducing to a lot of people listening to the show from around the world, I suppose. But it wasn't all that different from what it would have been like during normal times. So, of course, it was slightly weird. As you got to the airport, you got to the gate and they measured your temperature. Everybody was wearing a face mask, including the crew on the aeroplane. Once I got there, it was a bit emptier than usual because obviously there's no tourism at the moment from China because South Korea has imposed quarantine restrictions on most arrivals from abroad and nobody really wants to quarantine for two weeks to do a sort of three-day island weekend. But other than that, it was pretty normal. You know, people walking around on the beach, you could sit in coffee shops, you could go hiking, you could do all the usual things that people do on holiday islands. It was lovely. So this was a bucket and spade holiday on the beach at the economist's expense? Sadly, no, because I actually sent myself on this holiday before anybody had the idea of writing a story about it. That came later. More seriously, is it usual for there to be so few foreigners around? It's pretty unusual for there to be hardly any foreigners around on an island like Jeju because normally South Korea gets millions of Chinese tourists every year and also people from places like Japan and you know around Southeast Asia, even some Western tourists, people from America, some people from Europe. And none of these people can get there at the moment because South Korea has imposed two-week quarantine on basically all arrivals from abroad with a very small number of exceptions. Now, I think your staycation was before the latest flare-up in infections from the nightclubs in Seoul. Has that changed the way people are looking at domestic tourism? So I think the effect of that nightclub cluster, which actually happened on the same weekend that I went to Jeju, has been to make people slightly more cautious again. I think you're probably going to see some dampening effects of that. But on the other hand, the effect on domestic travel is probably not going to be that big because pretty specific situation. There was a lot of people in a crowded nightclub and those clubs have now been shut again for the time being. So people are probably going to avoid clubbing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to avoid tourism. So I suppose the lesson of this is that if you can get your contact tracing and testing right, then domestic tourism, at least, it'd be a while, I suppose, before borders open, can resume relatively quickly. Yeah, I think that's definitely the lesson from South Korea. The fact that a lot of people felt confident enough to go to Jeju and also to travel to Seoul from elsewhere around the country on the long weekend at the beginning of May reflected their trust and their faith in the system fundamentally functioning here and testing and contact tracing operating well enough that you don't have to worry too much about catching COVID. Lena, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Coming up... How might the airline industry change for the better post-pandemic? They always say alcoholics can't reform until they've hit the bottom. Well, maybe we'll hit rock bottom. But I do think if we do that, we can find sunny our plans. And bubbles usually worry economists. 
but might they actually save the summer? Countries have been in varying states of lockdown for the past few months, and this is one way that governments are looking at opening themselves up again in a limited fashion. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me, in a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. The coronavirus crisis has grounded many of the world's airlines, with heavy travel restrictions in place. Air passenger numbers have dwindled to next to nothing in many places. In April, commercial flights were down by roughly three quarters compared with the same month last year. Warren Buffett, the influential American investor, recently sold all of his firm's airline shares. Something that was a low probability event happened, and it happened to hurt particularly the travel business, the hotel business, but the airline business in particular. And of course, the airline business has the problem that if the business comes back 70% or 80%, aircraft don't disappear. You've got too many planes. The world changed for airlines. The situation is extremely difficult for aviation. Is it going to get worse before it gets better? Absolutely. My name is Andrew Charlton. I'm the managing director of Aviation Advocacy, a government affairs and commentary firm based in Switzerland. Until about now, everyone has been working on the assumption that we can get back to what it used to be. So they have been bailing out without appreciating that actually the hole is below the waterline, and so there's. Bailing won't help. All it will do is slow the inevitable. And so I think clever people are starting now to focus on what the future might look like in a way that's different to the way it used to look. Andrew believes you should never let a crisis go to waste. In his opinion, the pandemic could offer the industry a chance to reset and to fix some of its underlying problems. Before the pandemic struck, at the end of last year, IATA, which is the International Airlines Lobbying Group, calculated that there were 30 profitable airlines in the world. That's 30 out of about 500. So the situation is not good. The situation was not good. What has kept aviation going since 1944, when the modern system was built, is nationalism. The entire system is built on nationalism. If we didn't have the regulatory constriction, or if we didn't have the regulatory limitations, I could see a future where the airlines actually merge. We talk always about international aviation, but there isn't international aviation. There's no such thing as international aviation. All we have are national companies that sometimes fly to other countries. All this comes out of an international treaty signed in 1944 when the war was still going. So it's time we had a good hard look at that. But I think it's inevitable that even if we don't change that, there'll be fewer airlines, there'll be fewer passengers, there'll be fewer aircraft, and there'll be fewer flights being offered. The implication of what you're saying about the nationalist origins of the structure of the business is that what we'll be left with is national flag carriers and hardly anybody else. Apart from the United States, almost all airlines in the world started as state-owned and as national carriers. You know the hints in the name: Air France, British Airways, Alitalia. And then in the 90s, we started to privatise, but we never got rid of the regulatory structure. Where we're going now, now, scarily, looks as if it's back to 1944. It looks as if we're going back to 
states putting significant amounts of capital into the airlines and effectively sitting on the board. I think there's every chance that we're back to flag carriers, which I think would be very much a retrograde step. And presumably the barriers to entry being so high, we're not likely to see any new airlines formed anytime soon. Well, that's the interesting thing, as a matter of fact, Simon, because yes, historically, barriers to entry are almost insurmountable. But at this moment, in this crisis, even with the national restrictions, I think we'll see many fewer airlines. Therefore, there will actually be a lot of aircraft available. There will be a lot of pilots available. There will be access to airports, slots. There will be gates. There'll be all the things that normally stop, stop, stop you from doing anything actually now being available. So if we grasp the moment, we could actually land at a place where we've got 30 or 50 competitive airlines around the world, all of which are big and financially successful, which actually is good, and there would still be the threat of competitive entrance. So I think that would be a really good thing. So it wouldn't be that bad for consumers. I mean, the implication of there being fewer airlines, less choice, is that prices will get higher, services deteriorate, but that need not be the case. That is my belief. You've either got to believe in the market at work or not, I guess. But here's what's going to happen, I think, almost inevitably. When the pandemic lifts or as it lifts across various markets within travel bubbles, Australia New Zealand is talking about creating one, airlines will throw capacity at that market. They will do whatever they can to induce passengers to get over their fear and to come out. A travel bubble is a way to allow countries to be linked up again, to allow people to cross borders. This is one way that governments are looking at opening themselves up again in a limited fashion. Simon Rabinovich is The Economist Asia Economics Editor, based in Shanghai. He's been looking into the potential route to economic recovery that travel bubbles could offer. The idea with the bubbles is to connect countries that are basically at the same stage of the fight against coronavirus. And so the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, launched the world's first travel bubble. They opened up their borders to each other. China and South Korea have opened what they call a fast track channel for business travelers between both countries. And it's expected in June that they'll be more opened up in Europe, Austria, the Czech Republic, Germany, Hungary. So we could be heading for a future of lots of small travel bubbles tying together countries that have been you know, relatively successful in dealing with the virus. Presumably the economic benefits of being in one of these bubbles would be enormous. Amidst lockdown, of course, countries are finding ways to go forward. Trading goods, trade and services does not necessarily rely on people being actually in situ. But if you're running a multinational business, you want to be able to cross borders. You want your workers to be able to cross borders. And then, of course, the global tourism industry is is utterly reliant on that. It is a really important step for normalizing the global economy. When you look at the governments that are in discussions about launching these travel bubbles, though, the absolute precondition is that they have to have done a good job domestically. And presumably, besides having got on top of the virus already, countries will want to be assured that the partner country, as it were, is keeping a grip on the situation. It would want some knowledge, at least, about its future policies. That's right. You can almost look at this in trade terms as sort of the mother of all non-tariff barriers. So, you know, when you're dealing with that kind of negotiation between countries, 
you're getting into really, really sensitive territory in that you're dealing with how countries are regulating themselves. And in this case, it's how are countries dealing with the pandemics domestically. So you'll need to have total transparency in terms of the level of infections in different countries. You'll want to have full disclosure and transparency about the kind of approach that's taken. If there is to be infections discovered, exactly how is the contact tracing happening? How is the isolation being done? And so you'll have to have countries harmonizing these approaches. And then under Underlying all of that, you really have to have trust between countries. So, you know, for example, if you look at the Asian region, Australia has done a very good job of limiting infections. So has China. Those two countries happen to be right now in the midst of a, sort of a political slash trade war. So the odds of them hopping in a travel bubble at the moment are pretty slim because, you know, even though their infection levels look similar, you just don't have enough bilateral trust, which I think is really needed to make the bubble sustainable. What about the contrary example, I suppose, countries with high rates of infection, but on relatively good political terms. Britain and France, I suppose, is an obvious example. That's right. And in fact, the two countries, Britain and France, have talked about having reciprocal arrangements where they allow travellers from, from each country to visit the other. At a political level, that seems tenable. And logically, it seems reasonable as well that, you know, even if you have a high level of infection, so long as you have a similarly high level of infection, you can open your borders to each other. And I think that's true if you look at it kind of as a snapshot in time. But the problem arises that, you know, as you go forward, if one of the countries begins to do a lot better in terms of managing the virus and limiting infections and the other doesn't, then I think the tendency will be that you'll want to begin to close the border to the other country because you don't want to have your good work going to waste. And equally, when you're dealing with that high level of infection, cross-border travel is the least of your concerns. You're still trying to limit the spread of the virus domestically. You're still trying to have varying states of lockdown domestically, not wanting to have big gatherings of people. So the idea of having a bunch of people crunch together in the Eurostar or get together on Ryanair to go between countries is, you know, a surefire way to ensure that the virus is not going to be controlled, but will continue to pose problems. So that kind of bubble, I think, is one that will be less stable and, and less productive than a clean bubble would be. In many countries, of course, it's still anybody's guess whether we will actually manage to escape to the seaside. I asked Stanley Pinyal the question on everybody's mind. When can we have a proper summer holiday again? If only I knew. I mean, hopefully it'll be weeks rather than months. You know, my sense is I think people will adapt. People will have less fancy holidays this summer. It may be instead of a big foreign trip or a city break, you have something a lot simpler. You know, you rent a house and you stay there with the family for a week. You know, that doesn't sound so bad. After the past few months we've had, I think a lot of people are, will just be happy to have any kind of holiday. We'll just take what we're given this year. Indeed we will. Stanley, thank you very much. Good to talk. That's all for this edition of Money Talks. If you'd like to read more about the way the pandemic is changing the world, you can read our briefing on the future of travel and tourism in the forthcoming edition of the paper. Subscribe today. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.